Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How was your week, Dave? It was great. Uh, Still in Texas, uh, more highs than lows. Uh, Had our first date night in three months. Nice. Uh, No one fought me. Yeah, that was great. No one fought me uh, at the bar over the size of my truck. GMC Sierra 1500. Very good. Huge. Not (laughs) jacked up, you know, but, you know, it'll do. Um, It's funny. uh, First um, time I went to buy something here, I was buying firewood for my fire pit outside. And the person said, you have six or eight foot bed, just assuming truck. And I said Highlander. And I was like, what? What's a Highlander? <laughs> oh, a Toyota. Toyota? Did yeah, Toyota. Well, there's are Tundras out here. But yeah, they're Tundras. Yeah. But um, yeah. the, the expectation. Uh, expectation uh, is truck first and, and gun second. So uh, You're, and, you're allowed uh, to have a uh, second non-truck car probably, but you got to start with the truck. You have to. It's a must. So I had my truck. We went on the date. Uh, we had a great time. Uh, we're still married, and my truck was was fine. So it, the, the the week uh, started out well. Uh, another great thing. I don't know uh, for those of you out there who like music. Uh, Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires put on a, a free concert uh, online uh, at fans.com or something like that. It's uh, out of Nashville. So look look up uh, May twenty second. It's a great show, especially minutes thirty ish through 45 so if you like uh, that type of americana music uh, that's a that's a must but uh which the grass is growing we do we do it's part of our show the grass is growing outside uh the uh erosion hasn't defeated me yet uh new brothels landscaping company is happy with the thousands of dollars i'm pouring into decomposed granite and uh I'm managing to hold my weight here, even though the brisket here in Texas is, is great. And, and last but not least, I must mention this. I finally found a beer in Texas, an IPA, because you know I'm an IPA drinker, that I like. Shiner's Wicked Juicy IPA. That's not an infomercial from Shiner, but I just I have to tell you, like it had been a long, hard trek trying to find a beer in Texas that I enjoyed. It's, it's the, well, I won't say the one thing. But it's one of the things that California has over Texas. So that was my week, Matt. How's yours? How's New York? Yeah, well, that sounds like quite a week. No, we, we've had a good week here, too. Uh, speaking of lawns, our lawn is very green, but there's very little grass. So we've got some serious stuff growing back there. The, the crabgrass is coming in hard again this year. We've got some other things. So we're, we're, we're kind of dealing with that. I'm trying to figure out just how much do I care. If you cut it down to the same height it all kind of looks the same so that may have to be good enough for this year at least but today was the last day of the kids school so big benchmark for us to have reached that Uh, you know we homeschool so nothing was super different for us after march who doesn't homeschool these days right matt well exactly but we we were doing it before it was cool we were doing it before it was cool so um but it's still it's it's a it's a trek and, you know, for my wife, especially working really hard with the kids 
And so, you know, it's been challenging, even though they've used to working at home to not be able to do their homeschool co-op and other activities. So anyway, it's, it's a good step for us to make. We, we, we start the, se- the, the year early, we end the year early. And so well, we've made it. And it's a really, really hot and humid day. So it feels like you should be ending school on a day like today. Nice. Well, last week we talked about the roots of our present hyper-partisanship. And if you haven't listened yet, you can find the episode wherever fine podcasts are given away for free. Uh, We are on Apple. We are on Google. We are on Spotify. We're on Stitcher. So please subscribe. Leave us a review. Uh, We're happy to get constructive criticism, but we love unconditional praise. So five stars. Why not? This week, we're going to turn our attention to another side of the COVID-19 crisis, or at least another development from that crisis, U.S.-China relations. So let's start with some headlines. Probably the most important development in U.S.-China relations this week was China's attacks on freedom in Hong Kong, leading U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to certify to Congress that Hong Kong is no longer autonomous from China which has a number of implications in American law. And so when you layer that on top of the role that China played in the spread of COVID-19, China's aggressive response to even mild attacks on its human rights record, think about their response to that single tweet from Houston Rockets general manager, Daryl Morey, last fall. Uh, Both sides of the presidential campaign are eager to portray the other as soft on China. And you don't have to do a lot of work to find the new ad, uh, the Joe Biden ad that makes that accusation against Donald Trump, and then the reply from Donald Trump calling Joe Biden China's puppet. So you can expect a lot more of that, I think, as the campaign unfolds over the next five months, because frankly, it's not that hard to find embarrassing clips, pictures, tweets that suggest both Joe Biden and Donald Trump have been perhaps a little cozier with China than these current times would want them to be. What do you think about the political football there, Dave? You know, I think I'm going to let the uh, creators of South Park uh, make the decision on this one as to uh, which, uh, which candidate has more been the puppet of China. Uh, I think uh, of all the U.S. cultural things out there, South Park has probably been the most accurate with regard to things that China has done more recently uh, and, and with a good dose of humor uh, as well. But um, yeah, it, it tells you something, right? When you're talking about important foreign relations that uh, campaigns are trying to make it about the other campaign uh, being bad. I mean, that happens in every campaign you know, ever since the way back when in the French revolution, when there were uh, decisions being made as to whether or not to support the French and claims being made on both sides that the other was wrong. But um, I think back then there was a clear notion as to what uh, the public good was uh, and, and whether or not the other side was uh, working towards that public good. Uh, today it just seems to be, like we said last week, um, a hyperpartisan uh, ball that's kicked back and forth. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure I'm going to let my judgment on the matter be uh, framed by uh, advertisements on either side. That's probably a wise move. So obviously much more important than that partisan political question is the overall strategic question. What should America's strategy be toward China? 
Uh, on the left, there's an ongoing debate about how a Biden administration should engage China. Uh, Thomas Wright of the Brookings Institute argued in The Atlantic this last week that Joe Biden should follow the EU by taking a harder line against Chinese human rights violations and economic strong-arm tactics after China viewed their efforts at soft diplomacy as a sign of weakness. So the EU is cracking down, relatively speaking, and Thomas Wright suggests that Joe Biden might want to follow their lead. On the other hand, Rachel Esplin Odell and Stephen Wertheim warned in the New York Times recently that Democrats need to avoid Trump's quote-unquote China trap by speaking out against what they're calling an unnecessary cold war with a power strong enough to endanger American security and well-being. Where do you think the Biden administration or the Biden campaign, at least, will land on all this? Well, I mean, I think within the Democratic Party and a good portion of the Republican establishment, there's always been this division uh, between the more moralist uh, faction and uh, the idealist faction. I think one of the things that happened in the 1990s and aughts is that these two factions made a peace uh, with one another uh, so that um, you know, some of the more um, uh, uh, more uh, concerted attempts to suggest that a global norm uh, can be welcomed and embraced by all and that that global norm was very progressive uh, were put forth uh, and then they were cloaked uh, in, in some pragmatism. But much like the campaign between Biden and Sanders before Biden won, um, I, I think that there is uh, this tension that still is there within the Democratic Party. And uh, I don't think that Biden uh, is going to be able to work his way through this tension. I think that there is a driving secular humanist desire among many a Democrat uh, to believe that there really aren't any differences uh, between the world's people, that we can be one global entity. And I think that um, the showcasing of uh, China's human rights violations that show that, well, this isn't the case, that uh, they want to flex their muscles and exert their power and trample upon uh, a progressive notion of human rights will always awaken that group within the Democratic Party that I think rightly finds uh, such abuses wrong. So it's, um, it's a tension that I don't think will be overcome, uh, certainly within uh, the, the Biden campaign. And it'll be interesting to see which VP candidate he chooses and where that VP candidate lands and where that kind of uh, Democratic Party bobo, bohemian bourgeois consensus is able to fall on this issue. Yeah, we'll have to see. That's, a, that's an important decision he's going to have to make in the next two months or so, and it certainly will have some bearing on the overall foreign policy picture that's presented by, by the campaign. Uh, meanwhile, on the right, there's an important debate going on about just how serious China threatens America's interests. Uh, so Michael Rubin of AEI argued recently in the National Interest that the real threat from China remains not its rise, but rather its collapse. Freedom is contagious, he says. Xi's actions against Hong Kong may, in hindsight, appear like treating a chest wound with a Band-Aid. Uh, in other words, that China may have made a strategic error in its crackdown on Hong Kong, and rather than transforming Hong Kong into something more like mainland China, Hong Kong may ultimately transform China, 
into something more like it. Now, on the other side of that, we have a recent piece from David Goldman in the new edition of the Claremont Review of Books, which, by the way, the day that issue comes out is, is like a second birthday for me every, every quarter or so. But the unprecedented challenge, he claims, that China's recent outward turn poses, he says, China doesn't want to rule you, uh, but rather like the Borg in Star Trek, it wants to assimilate, assimilate you by leveraging its leadership in 5G broadband internet access and in related fields. What do you think the crackdown on Hong Kong portends for China's future and the future of freedom and democracy there? Well, I think it'll generate the response that you see in someone like uh, Michael Rubin, who ought to say that there are liberal internationalists uh, within the Republican Party as well as the Democratic Party, uh, there are individuals who believe that, that freedom is contagious. Well, there are a lot of things that are contagious that aren't good, and there are a lot of seen. things that are contagious that, well, exactly, that are a lot of things, as we've seen. And there are a lot of things that um, really amount to, well, how is the thing used as a means towards human flourishment? I, I, I always remember, um, and so here on Ruben's piece, a great line by John Agresto that it's, it's not so much that people love liberty, it's they love their neighbor's liberty. And that's the real difficulty when you're trying to uh, assume that somehow this um, brave new world is going to form in the world uh, because there's something that people like. It's not that uh, a matter of simply you liking it, but can you like it to your benefit and can you like it when it's employed uh, by, by your neighbor? I thought the Goldman piece was was incredible. I, I, I mean, I've, I've met him. He's a, he's a brilliant guy. Uh, he is uh, someone who's made a lot of money, which is a qualifier for, for something that's good. But he's, he's someone who turned his attention as a serious individual to the realities of the world and trying to you know, pick up a sense as to why do people do what they do and how are people different from one another and how are they similar to one another? And what does that mean for grand strategy in international relations? So I, I would say read the Goldman piece. He does an excellent job of explaining China's rise, uh, explaining the United States' response to that rise, and, and really kind of um, uh, not, not simply just saying that, we're, that, that we'll get peace through strength, but we'll get peace through strength that is prudent and employed in, in a prudent manner. So um, I think of all the thinkers you've referenced here on this front, that Goldman piece in Claremont is titled The Chinese Challenge is really a, a must read for this week. And by the way, we're going to have all the links for all the pieces that we mentioned in the show notes. So if you go into the podcast show notes, you'll be able to grab those. Uh, you can obviously grab them just from what we've given you in the references here, but it makes it a little bit easier for you if you track them down there. The last piece I want to mention before we turn to your required reading is a report put out by the State Department in just the last 10 days or so entitled U.S. Strategic Approach to the People's Republic of China. And it's now been just about 41 years since the United States established diplomatic relations with the Chinese communist regime, uh, 1979, hoping at the time and really ever since that political and economic liberalization would follow. Uh, but the report argues uh, near the beginning, it has become evident that this approach underestimated the will of the Chinese Communist Party to constrain the scope of economic and political reform 
in China. Over the past two decades, reforms have slowed, stalled, or reversed. And it goes on from there to argue for the need for a new realism with respect to China's overall goals and role in the world and appreciation of the competitive rivalry that we really have with China, whether we're ready to recognize that, acknowledge that or not. So with that backdrop, let's now turn to your required reading, Professor Corbin, and see what historical perspective you can give us on these great power discussions. Yeah, well, the first thing I would say, Matt, is that this, this dichotomy between moralism and realism is, is a wrong dichotomy, or, or idealism and realism is a wrong dichotomy. Uh, we ought to always try to be realistic in, in the way that we approach uh, others and approach our understanding of the world, and, and always uh, try to do what's right. Uh, so the, the greater we are, uh, the better we should be. And those two things should go hand in hand, and they aren't necessarily diametrically opposed. I think before I get into my required reading, one thing that's important to remember is that uh, the year 1979 is an important year, right? You're in the middle of the Carter administration that failed, and it followed another uh, failed administration, the Nixon administration. And the problem, I would say, with both the Nixon and the Carter administrations is that they were pendulums that had swung too far uh, in the direction of realism on the one hand without morals uh, or moralism without a realistic view of the world. I could have assigned a few Thucydides, but we assigned him last week. I, I think I'd, I want to add for variety's sake uh, a different uh, required reading for today. Someone who I think understands uh, both um, the world through a realistic uh, percep perception and a uh, perception in which the world uh, has a, a moral basis, and that's uh, George Washington. Uh, Washington writes in his farewell address of September 19th, uh, 1796, that America should observe good faith and justice toward all nations and cultivate peace and harmony with all. He doesn't suggest this because he believes that somehow the world has been redeemed or is being redeemed by democracy and liberalism. He does this because he believes that acting within that spirit will help you become a great nation. That it's possible to be virtuous and successful at the same time. Uh, it's a, as he says, it's a sentiment which ennobles human nature. And he asks the question whether it's rendered impossible by our vices. And, and he seems to think that uh, while our vices hold back our virtues, we ought not to make the perfect the enemy the good. So how we do this structurally, and Washington goes on to say that in the execution of such a plan, the most important thing is that we don't have permanent inveterate antipathies against particular nations or passionate attachments for others, that we get a clear sense of what our peace requires of us, what power we have at our disposal to achieve our peace, and how we can best employ that power. That means keeping away foreign influence, keeping away ideology, keeping away any source that might undercut our ability to have a clear sense as to the peace that we want to enjoy and our desire to come together to enjoy that peace. And he says, as, as famously in this, in this uh, address, that our detached and distant situation 
invites and enables us to pursue a different course. I think a lot of people think, oh, in the 21st century, everything, all the axioms that Washington's laid out are no longer true because the world's interconnected and there's no way because we're not distant anymore that we can act this way. Well, what do you think, Matt? Do you think there's something in what Washington has suggested that's impossible in the 21st century? No, and I think that's one of the things, you know, whenever I teach this text, that's always the question. I think students are very persuaded by the idea of a respected neutrality, which is really the vision that Washington's laying out. But they wonder, they wonder, well, how, how do you translate that into 21st century realities? Uh, the world is more interconnected. It's smaller in a certain sense than it was in 1796. And yet the fundamental principles, right, the moral principles, the observations on human nature, the overall desire to understand one's own national interest in light of the preservation of the good American republic that all foreign policy ought to be directed toward, all that is as true in 2020 as it was in 1776. Yeah, so I, I go back, and you mentioned this in, in bringing up uh, this required reading, the um, statement that was made by the, the Trump administration, the U.S. national security strategy uh, relative to um, China. And when you read that document, it's filled with this New York Times foreign policy gobbledygook that talks about global stakeholders and international systems and transforming the international order. You know, all of this kind of uh, dictionary architecture that's been um, uh, invented uh, by 20th century minds that, that the founders in the 18th century would have looked at and said, where is this coming from? It has no relation to reality. There's no relation to kind of the, the basic dictums that, that define the human experience, but it, it kind of goes, goes to show you that in the 20th century, the, the more powerful we became, the more we changed our understanding as to what we thought we could do in the world. And I think it's that, um, it's the freshness of, of, of Washington's slash Hamilton's assessment of the world, of regimes, of what a regime, what regimes amount to and what regimes ought to be doing for their people uh, that is so striking uh, to me. Uh, you and I both have had um, the, the great fortune of studying under uh, Angelo Cotavilla, uh, who many of this audience will know. You probably read, read him if you were one of our students. And, and he's been very, very critical uh, of the 20th century transformation of American foreign policy because of the influence of these various ideologies that grab a hold of the American foreign policy elite, uh, whether it's the liberal internationalism of Woodrow Wilson, uh, the, the realism of Henry Kissinger, and the neoconservatism of those who led American foreign policy at the beginning of the 21st century. We've got to let go of these um, constructions, these artificial constructions that we try to just imprint upon the world. And so we see with Washington, at the end of the paragraph that you were just reading, he imagines a day when we may choose peace or war as our interest guided by justice shall counsel. Right? A small country in difficult circumstances needs to grow in power and needs to be respected in a way that it can choose peace or war as interest guided by justice shall counsel. And what's one of the striking facts of American 
political history that by the time you get really past the War of 1812, the United States had essentially reached that position. And yet one of the challenges we faced in the 20th and 21st century was in some ways efforts that have squandered that position or that advantage and put us in a position where either we're not choosing in the way that we might otherwise be able to, or, or we're acting as if we're not choosing, right? We're being, we're being led by these kind of artificial constructs as you're describing or other reacting to other phenomena around us so that we lose sight of the fundamental purpose of that foreign policy, namely to preserve the regime, namely to strengthen from without that which is precious within. Yeah, and I, I, that, is, that is an America first doctrine, but it's America at her best first doctrine, and that's important. America abiding by the precepts that define uh, natural justice doctrine. So it's, it's the intersection of the, the natural love of one's particular own with the love of a universal good. Justice is a good thing. Virtue is a good thing. Acting right is a good thing. And these don't have to be mutually exclusive things. And I, I think um, we try this in our own individual lives and we fail, uh, but there's no difference between what we're trying in our individual lives and what we are as a nation. Because at the end of the day, that nation, like us, is a human entity, it's a human thing. And so near the end of the section on foreign policy in the farewell address, Washington writes, harmony, liberal intercourse with all nations are recommended by policy humanity and interest. Again, that overlap between policy, humanity, and interest. But even our commercial policy should hold an equal and impartial hand, neither seeking nor granting exclusive favors or preferences. I'm reminded of, of Romans 12, 18, uh, where Paul instructs the Romans individually, I think it's fair to say, rather than collectively as a political unit. But nevertheless, I think the principle is is one that goes beyond the individual application. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that, that spirit seems to be beneath all of the instruction that Washington's giving in this address. If so clear, the end, peace. Uh, and then the, the conditions of that end, the circumstances of, of that end, if possible. And we know in life that that's often not possible. So what, what we try to do is we still have that peace in mind, uh, dealing with the things that get in the way of our peace. Now, I think uh, a good example of, of, of reasoning along the lines we've been describing, as you think about the strategic imperative of understanding your rival, um, in the case of China, uh, a good example of of an earlier effort to do just that is in George Kennan's Sources of Soviet Conduct. I know uh, we've probably both assigned that at various points in our teaching careers, where Kennan tries, as the title suggests very plainly, to understand the roots of Soviet actions in the international sphere. And so in contrast to what you were describing earlier, where we sort of impose an artificial construct on the world and assume that everybody has to be just like us and like the things that we like, Kennan 
makes every effort to understand the Soviets on their own terms so that then he can frame a policy that will actually respond to the Soviets as they are rather than the Soviets as we would like them to be. Matt, a great, great, uh, you know, the, the great catch in, in Washington's farewell address. And it, it makes me think once again of the Goldman piece. The, the Goldman piece, I think, is essential for this reason. It kind of has that Washington um, moving toward kind of a Kenan appreciation of regimes feel. And there's a great line in, in Goldman's essay, that I think the central line, uh, or central paragraph, I should say, of the essay, where, where Goldman says the following. American strategists seem to think we're dealing with the Soviet Union of the 1980s. If only it were that easy. Communism is a bankrupt ideology, a miserable failure at social and economic organization. China is something entirely different. Soviet communists told their most talented scientists, invent something new and we'll give you a medal. China says, invent something new, launch an initial public offering and become a billionaire. So what, what Goldman gets is that it takes hard work to understand a regime. But Kennan had lived for a time in Europe. He knew the Soviet Union well. He knew Russia well. And, and he, he, he tried to understand the development of the Soviet regime as part of the overall uh, Russian experience. And I think that when we approach China, we ought not to do with bullet points in mind, but we ought to try to, and it's a hard thing, and not, not everyone has the time to do this, but we ought to try to get a sense as to how the Chinese regime has developed into its current place. I think only with that sense of the other in mind can we relate to the other. Yeah, that's great. Well, more to say on that, no doubt, in the weeks to come. But we like to close the show on a bit of a lighter note. So we've got two last segments here that allow us to go in a little bit of a different direction. And so first, we're going to open the grade book. And so last week, we looked at presidential campaign slogans and talked about their merits and demerits. This week, we're looking at new quarantine hobbies. Lots of people looking for ways to pass the time in quarantine over the last few months. What kinds of stuff have you guys been doing with your kids, Dave? We tell them to go outside, to get outside, get away from the TV, get away from your handhelds, uh, go and, and not see if you can get bit by a scorpion, but go and see if you can see a scorpion. At least find one. Um, yeah, or like my upbringing, like move these rocks from here to there because my back hurts. <laughs> so those type of kind of, you know, hard labor, you know, good things for, you know, six-year-old boy, eight-year-old girl to do, you know, make some sleep earlier at night. So that, that's kind of been our, our hobby, kind of a, a, a work release program from the house, so to speak. Well, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. But um, there's a few more suggestions here from some magazines we found that, that might allow you to step up your game if you need to. So I don't know. I'm sure you've been on uh, ESPN a lot and you see all the crazy trick shots and things people have been working on, which apparently is another hobby. Uh, but we've got a few from Shape Magazine. I know one that you've subscribed to for many years. Um, number one, jigsaw puzzles. What do you think about jigsaw puzzles as a, as a quarantine activity? Am I grading this? 
You're grading this. Yeah, of course. This is, we're opening the grade book. Is there a grade that I can give lower than an F, like a G, like <laughs> kind of garbage? Because that's all that Jigsaw Puzzle did for this family. It just okay. created garbage all around the house. <laughs> My son, Jack, six years old, yeah. took a pair of scissors and everything was a Jigsaw Puzzle. He saw oh. something like this and all I saw was colored paper all over the floor. So um, I'm going to give that one a G. Okay. All right. Well, I get that. So yeah, we, I, I like the 25 piece ones that the, the kids do, you know, it takes about three minutes and you know, you've got a nice picture that you can see exactly. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much all frame. So not a lot of guesswork involved. I'm okay with up to about 300 or so pieces. We did one of those kind of early on as one of our quarantine activities, but then we thought, Hey, let's get out the thousand piece puzzle we've never done. And so we got the frame done on that thing. And now it's just collecting dust underneath the couch because that there's no way we're getting back to that. There's no way we're doing a thousand piece puzzle. So for me, it's probably a, a B minus when you're talking about the small puzzles, but it's, it's definitely a D D minus when you're talking about the big ones. All right. So that's, that's our first entry. Second entry this one, you're going to have to interpret a little bit creatively. Dancing around. They suggest dancing around. A lot of dancing around at the Corbin household. We dance. Uh, not well. Um, I don't want to reply. That's broad brush. I mean, I, I mean, my wife might be mad at me for saying that. No, there's a lot of dancing that goes on. I, I think that uh, more dancing now that we have our own home. Uh, then when we were living over um, a late 60s uh, year old woman in, in California. So yeah, dancing's good. Like, yeah, I, David dances right in the Bible. It's good. It's good to move around and it's good to experience joy. So uh, yeah, absolutely. a good yeah. dance uh, and a good, good spirit. I'm going to give that an A. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say, yeah. Even though I can't do it well, I'm going to give it an A. So <laughs> that's not required. Skill is not required. No, you're right, boy. Dancing with little kids in apartments. That is challenging. When we first moved to New York City, <laughs> we, had, we had two and three-year-olds who liked to move around in normal two and three-year-old ways. And a couple of 20-something guys beneath us who didn't have kids didn't quite get how two and three-year-olds worked. So yeah, we, we're, we're glad to have our own house too. We can, we can dance as we please on 100-year-old hardwood floors as necessary. Yeah, I'm going to give that an A also. Nice. That, that's a good activity. You know, you put a little bit of music on and, and the kids get some exercise, even if they can't go outside. Okay, so that's... Your kids don't judge you either when you're dancing. They're not like, you're a bad dancer. They're just saying, you're dancing with me. That's great. No, so that's, that's true. Uh, that's like one of those aspect. things. Yeah, you're right. You're yep. right. Not, not least until they get older. So now we've got New York Magazine has their own list. They had 15 items. We're not going to go through all 15. You can be grateful for that. But here's a few that caught my eye that I think might have um, been ones you'd enjoy as well. So first of all, making your own bread. No brainer. Bre anything bread is an A in my book. I, I, if it falls from the sky, it's great. If it's made, it's great. It's A. A bread equals A for me. Yeah. My, my wife uh, has been making bread for us for some time. We got into sourdough more recently. My son's got some food restrictions, so most store breads he can't eat. She makes incredible bread and whether it's sourdough or it's just regular wheat bread or whatever, there's just no going back. After you've gotten a taste of that, there's just no going back. So that is definitely an A, especially 
if somebody else is doing all the hard work and they're as skillful as my wife is. Okay, now how about this one, scrapbooking. I know you've been into that over the years. Uh, did you do a lot of scrapbooking the last couple of months? Never scrapbooked in my life, but I'll, I'm just going to use uh, what you just said. If someone else is doing it and does it well, yeah, it's, it's an A in my book. It's just something I can't do well. So it'd be an I for me, an A if someone does it well. And I, go th- I think about like all the pictures, the great pictures that my wife has taken, collected, printed, and put on our walls. And uh, you love it after the fact, but if I had to do all that on the front end, it'd be a, a disaster. So, yeah, I'm just scrapbooking. Um, uh, yeah, I'll give it a B plus, right? I think, I think if, if someone who knows how to do it can do it well, great. Just not my thing. Yeah, for me, it's kind of like fishing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad if somebody else wants to do it, but I don't have the patience for it. Um, great, great to see the final result. You know, it's, it's uh, fun to page through all those old memories, but just not going to be the way I'm going to spend a quiet winter evening or quarantine afternoon. All right. Lastly, for today, learning a new language. I, I have a feeling this is kind of a virtue signaling thing because we're all supposed to want to learn new languages. So uh, is anyone actually doing that? I don't know. But well, what about learning a new language under quarantine? You know, I'm pretty strong in the languages I know. Uh, English, of course, the language used across a lot of the United States. And I studied German and French uh, in college, uh, actually French in high school and college. A lot of you uh, who are listening, former students, know me as kind of the prairie dog of French, you know, someone uh, who has an understated ability uh, that they really don't want to like show off, but you know, they, they kind of get it. So you don't, you're not going to, uh, you're not going to reveal me there, Matt, are you? On, on there's, that there's no story. way I would, I would never tell that story that I've told to every one of my classes pretty much when you were still teaching with me at King's. No, I mean, it's a little bit unusual to have a professor in graduate school who decides to give you animals for a grade. Uh, so if you open you, you his stopped, grade book, I thought you just said you were going what? That's going to stop. But go ahead. No, I can't really have stop. That. I mean, we're, sure we're that far along. I've got to keep going. But, but you know, so if, if he were opening the grade book, there would be a bunch of animals rather than letters. So it was interesting. So, you know, we're taking our French midterm. Uh, of course, I hadn't studied French. I did Spanish. And, you know, reading French, reading Spanish, I guess it looks a lot alike. Don't try to talk it, but it looks pretty similar. So, so I got my midterm back first, and I got – the grade of Arctic wolf, which I thought was pretty good. You know, wolves are small, but fierce. And Arctic wolf adds a little extra zing to it. So I thought, all right, at least I'm on track to pass this thing. But uh, I'm sure you remember how in that moment, you were quite sure that you were going to get something really big and really ferocious. If I was an Arctic wolf, then you'd have to be a wolverine or something of that sort. And then- Something intergalactic. Something intergalactic. like, not like, Yeah. Right, the kind of character you only find in an Avengers movie. Uh, but instead, instead, he gave you Prairie Dog. And not only did he give you Prairie Dog, but I, I distinctly remember the five minutes that you then spent telling me about just how fierce and ferocious Prairie Dogs were and how plainly you'd scored better than me on that exam. Have you ever like met a Prairie Dog? Do you want your regular dog out there when a prairie dog is roaming your, your lawn? 
Well, I would say no. I think prairie dogs are some of the fiercest creatures to take on ant populations in the world. So I, I think you're wrong there. If I've got my Arctic wolf with me, I'll take my chances with your prairie dog. That's all I'm going to say. All right. So you got well, it out there. That's good. It's good. It's out there. It's, and it's, it's out there forever, right? That's the bit of the internet. It's never going back. So, all right. So touche. Touche. That's, that's all I have to say. That's the, that's the only story I can tell where, where I get, I get the big win over you. So, I mean, that, that's why I tell it all the time, right? Because you, 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 you can beat me in basketball and home run derby, but you can't beat me in French. I'll, I'll, I'll take that to the grave. All right. So, what, what grade was that after all? Did you ever give a grade to learning a new language? Um, I think it's just lower on the importance scale. I'm going to give it a D. Okay. okay. I mean, it's, it's, oh, uh, that's good, I guess. It's one of those things, DNA things that if you, um, if you have it in your family, I know it's not a DNA thing, of course. My, my dad did Russian and Chinese and my grandmother did French. It's, I think it's just a matter, it's a matter of will, which I didn't have at the time. So uh, yeah, probably. Uh, let me change that. An A, but it's just not something I'm good at. So. Not not your thing. All right. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a gentleman C. I'm uh, I'm I'm no language expert myself, and I can't really imagine spending my quarantine time doing that. But hey, if you did that, good for you. Uh, you know, then you're you're a better person than I am. All right. Our last our last segment here is what we call the Tocqueville's crystal ball. Here's how it works. Dave and I will make a prediction for the next week to come. And whoever's prediction is closer to the mark gets to choose the following week's crystal ball challenge. So last week we were predicting the one live sports event that actually occurred on the continental United States, the Tiger Woods, Peyton Manning versus Phil Mickelson, Tom Brady golf match. Uh, And do you remember how that turned out, Dave? how the, the crystal ball challenge turned out? You won. Congratulations. I, I think we both predicted that um, Tiger and Peyton would take it, which they did. I, I was surprised by, by how close it was. I wasn't surprised by how fun it was just to kind of watch them out there. You know, uh, it was like Sunday at 4.30 PM and I, I came in and it was just kind of, it's, it's a neat thing to see competition, especially in a time uh, of contagion. So it was, it was uh, the real human thing was good. But uh, yes, <clears throat> I predicted a, a, a bigger uh, Tiger uh, Peyton victory uh, than was had, probably produced by that birdie a hit that, uh, that uh, Tom had on one of those holes where uh, like six straight shots, he, six straight holes he had done terribly, but then came up with that. That was a great, great moment in that whole day. Yeah, Charles Barkley uh, is probably to blame. He, he pushed Tom Brady too far. You don't push Tom Brady too far. And so when it came right down to it, he makes this incredible hole-out birdie, 150 yards with a wedge. And, and that did seem to give some life to the Brady-Mickelson team. So they lost three holes to two holes. That's, that's how we were, we were doing it. I predicted four to two. You said five to three. Really, we both did pretty well to be honest, but I'm glad can I, just, I was. Can I just say this as a Patriots fan though? Can I just yep. say this? That hole was a, was a perfect example as to why the New England Patriots have won six Super Bowl championships and the Indianapolis cult, <laughs> Dr. David Talcott, have won one. Not yeah, 
Well, that is fair enough. Uh, and of course, Manning got his second with the Broncos, but but uh, six to two is the final count, at least between those two competitors on Super Bowl. Oh, I shouldn't say the final count, I guess. Brady's, Brady's got another shot. Maybe this year, we'll see. All right, so that was last week. This week, it looks like the dam is starting to break on professional sports. So we're starting to hear rumblings of sports coming back. PGA Tour is returning with regular tournaments on June 11th. Soccer is coming back to England. Italy and Spain already started up in Germany. Only one of the major leagues not coming back. Believe it or not, France. France has decided to fold up the shop. Uh, but the rest of the major European leagues are all coming back. Um, lots of lots there's of some, Hey, Matt, there's some Vichy everywhere. There's some <laughs> Vichy everywhere. I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't say you're surprised that it was the French League of the Five that decided not to come back. I'm just, you know, it's not, it's not a shock maybe to the rest of us. Okay, so there's a lot of rumblings that uh, Major League Baseball, NBA, NHL are all sort of plotting their comebacks, but no definite restart dates just yet. So here's this week's crystal ball challenge. Will we get, by one or all of those three leagues, a definite restart date in the coming week before, before we tape the show next week. Will we, get, will we get one or more of those leagues to announce a restart date? And tiebreaker, what will the earliest restart date among those three leagues be? I'm going to go – here's my crystal ball prediction. Uh, I'm going to go with the NHL. The fact that they already put out that 24 uh, – team playoff, which I think is just going to be amazing for all those who are listening. There's nothing like the NHL playoffs. So I'm going to say the NHL, uh, that's an easy way to go at this because they've already said they're going forward. But I think the first day of of competition uh, will be, let's say, um, let's say June 19th. I think that's a Friday. So the NHL playoffs will begin June 19th. And I think shortly after they make that announcement, you'll see a, a start for the NBA and, uh, and hopefully uh, a start uh, for, for the Major League Baseball. Um, and I think that it would well, – how wonderful would it be for Major League Baseball to start on July 4th? That would be – if we could get a real game played that day uh, safely, that would be wonderful. Those are my predictions. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the optimist here with these three leagues. I, I hope it happens. All right. So I think, I think the NBA is the most likely to announce an actual start date next week. Major League Baseball, I love the game. I've loved it my whole life. But when they get into one of these tussles between the players and the owners, they sometimes don't know how to get their way out until it's the last minute, the last possible chance. So I, I actually think they will start on July 4th. I think they've got good reasons to want to do that. But my guess is they're going to push this thing as long as they possibly can. And they won't come to any agreement until the last possible day that would allow them to actually start July 4th. And that's probably a week or two away yet. So I don't, I don't think we're going to get anything from them. NBA, Seems like they've kept things pretty closely to the vest. They seem like they're narrowing down. There's been some trial balloons, 24 teams, 20 teams, going to Orlando, Disney World down there, whatever they're going to set up. So I, I just, as, as a league that seems like they, they know how to act when they want to act, 
I think it's going to be the NBA that, that makes an announcement next week. And I'm going to say they're going to start uh, in July. I think they're going to need June to get going. So I'm going to say it'll be July 15th for the first NBA playoff game, round robin, whatever they format they settle on. I think it's going to be July 15th. And the NBA and the NBA only will announce this between this time, this week, and one week from today. All right, we'll see. We'll see I hope who's so. That'd be yeah. great. Well, I'd yeah. like to see them all get back on the board. Yeah, that'd be great. So. Yeah, I think we're I hope all, you're right. We're all ready. Well, all right, that's it for this week's podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe. Uh, put up a review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Glad to have you along. Really encouraged by the early response. And so we look forward to building this over the weeks to come. Next week, our plan is to tackle the very difficult question of race in America in light of the recent killings of George Floyd and Ahmad Arbery and the long history behind them. So we look forward to being with you back again next week. Mm-hmm.